everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna. Welcome to another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. In this episode, I'm interviewing Miguel Toribio Mateus. Miguel is from Spain, but he lives in London where he's doing his PhD. And as part of his PhD, he gets to explore functional and lifestyle medicine, which is really right up my alley and probably up yours too. And further, he's going even more specifically into the impact of nutrition on brain health and looking even deeper at the gut, which makes complete sense, right? Because we know that the gut is almost like the first brain and what goes on in the gut can change our cognition, it can change our mood, it can change our memory. So what you're going to find in this interview is that we traverse through a number of different topics. We talk about SIBO, which is small intestinal bowel overgrowth. We talk about fasting. We talk about butter and the type of butter that would be the best. And why is butter useful for the gut? You'll learn more about butyrate and maybe some things that you didn't know about antimicrobial herbs and different supplements too. So we toss that in and you know what I like about Miguel so much as you'll hear is that you know I, I kind of feel like a kindred spirit that when he and I get talking about science we can straddle both the logical aspects of research and also come over into the more intuitive art and the creative side of science that I feel like is a large missing piece. So get your right and left brain hemispheres ready for this discussion. I think you'll enjoy it. And there are a number of great tips. So be ready to jot them down. Enjoy the listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. Our guest today is Miguel Toribio Mateus. And uh, as you already know, Miguel is a nutritional therapist. He's been doing lots of great research. And, you know, I stumbled upon one of his papers not too long ago and started reading it, reached out to him. He did a webinar with uh, one of our, our groups. It was fabulous. So I wanted to invite him to the show. So welcome, Miguel. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so wonderful to talk with you and to catch up and see yes, where you're at you. on thank your path. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. You know, um, I, I know that this is not a question that I've asked you before, but it's probably the question that I want to know the answer from just about everybody I meet. And it is, what is your favorite color? It's, uh, it's an interesting one because just naming one is probably going to be difficult, but I'm always drawn to black for some reason. I'm black? black wow. 
Wow, I have never had somebody say black. I was vibing navy blue for you for some reason, but then you said black. Uh, well, blue, blue is what I tend to choose a lot of my clothes in because it's very, I think it suits me, but I'm always drawn to black as well. I've always had a thing for black things, and I think black is very powerful in, as a color as well, but probably in between black and blue, probably dark blue. Yes, <laughs> kind of like the nighttime sky, you know, like that kind of that's intense, it. really yeah. deep uh, indigo. Yeah, that's really pretty. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you said black, actually, because, you know, I often pay attention to a lot of the colors of the rainbow, but I don't focus as much on black or even brown. So mm -hmm. I like that you called up uh, black. Um, you know, so many people wear black clothing. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, I don't know how many of them would say that they're drawn to black or that they really like the color black, but it's just, it's, it's kind of nice and convenient. It's all encompassing. It's like yeah. the void. It's like consciousness. <laughs> yeah. I like to think that I've got a very colorful personality, so I don't need to wear many other colors. Just <laughs> That's true. That's true. You are very colorful. So you're from Spain, yeah. but you live in the UK. Yeah. And you're working on your PhD research. And um, what I really like about you is that you're one of the things is is that you're a hybrid. In my mind, you're a hybrid. You're you're one of these people who can span research over into the clinical domain. So in other words, you can make the heady stuff really practical and mm -hmm. you can implement. So you know, as as you and I were talking about before we jumped on the podcast, you've got some publications. I guess if you were on an elevator and somebody met you and they said, hey, what are you researching? What do you tell people in 30 seconds? I know it's just, it's, you know, it, this is a very interesting question because I've um, uh, I'm just about to start collecting data in this phase of my um, doctoral research. Uh, so I'm probably better able to do this now than I was three months ago when it was all a bit of a mash in my head. So I've got a, a, a subject and a meta subject. This, the meta subject is this thing called patient orient, patient, patient reported um, uh, outcome measures. So patient reported outcome measures, which basically means uh, you tell me how you feel and I make a note of that, and you tell me how you feel uh, when you come to see me again in a month's time, and I make a note of that, and that gives me an understanding of how you may have improved by eating a more colorful diet, for example. So that kind of thing. And uh, so that's, that's the, the specific thing. And then the meta subject is the relationship between the gut and the brain, so within nutrition, particularly. So basically, if you put the two together, what I'm looking at is uh, people who come to uh, to seek the advice of a nutritionist or nutritional therapist or nutrition coach, whichever way you want to call it, and uh, they say, my memory is not what it used to be, and uh, my gut is not ideal. Either I may have either you know, constipation or diarrhea or bloating or, you know, any of these things that people tell you that they have wrong with their gut. And there are bits and pieces that are not quite working in their brain as well. And you can put the two together and you're going to give them something to do that is based on diet, maybe some supplements, you know, uh, this kind of thing that we do in functional medicine, basically, and lifestyle recommendations. And uh, because it's just so complex, if you were to do a randomized controlled trial, you wouldn't be able to 
get all of that complexity into an endpoint, into a single line that goes from A to B to measure that. So a simple way to gather the complexity is to just basically run some questions uh, and uh, get an understanding of a benchmark in terms of, uh, you know, if you tell me that your bloating is as bad as it can be today and, the, and the, as bad as it can be is a six, basically, if the scale is a seven-point scale from zero to six, um, and uh, you tell me six, and then I tell you, okay, well, your bloating is pretty bad, I'm going to maybe play around with polyphenols, give you more of a rainbow diet, try to use natural antimicrobials, maybe in a couple of supplements, and see how you feel with that. And also how your memory feels in, in a couple of months' time. Then you go down to four and you tell me, my bloating has improved, but so has my memory. And that's the area that I'm really interested in, in the relationship between, that correlation between how when the gut improves, the brain symptoms may actually improve as well. So, wow. Sorry, so, it was a bit longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's good that you're doing it in such a systematized way. And I think that this happens in clinical practice for so many clinicians, but they may not take it in quite perhaps the scientific way that you are, where you're capturing mm -hmm. things, you're testing out different things. Um, you know, I'm curious, you said memory. So when you're mm -hmm. looking at brain function, do you ever look at mood? Are you looking at yeah. uh, more the emotional realm too? Speak about that a little bit more because, um, you know, it just seems like there's so much research that is emerging on the food mood connection. And of course, we know that the gut is probably the first brain. So what, yeah. what's your take on the mood response with, with gut healing? Uh, definitely. So I'm looking at all of that. I'm not looking at specific, um, I'm measuring specifics like, uh, for example, if I give you um, for memory or for cognition, that you, if you start looking at validated tools just to measure that, there are so many of them that clinicians in, in plain clinical practice will get lost just trying to find the, the right tool to measure it. So what I'm trying to do is just to, to, to gather all of that potential complexity into a tiny little bit of concreteness. So it, I will definitely be asking questions about mood. How do you feel today? So uh, how is your energy? All of those things are important and, and they are driven to a certain extent from the gut up. This is the, the, the kind, we're starting to only scratch the surface on, on finding out how that happens. So we know that when your gut is happier in general, your mood is going to be better. We know that probably that happens because your microbial diversity, the, the amount of uh, different bugs that are living in your gut is going to help your um, neurotransmitter production. You're going to absorb nutrients better probably because the integrity of the gut will be better as well. So there will be less intestinal permeability. There will be a number of different things happening all at the same time when you're eating the right foods for you and when you're feeding your microbes. But specifically, which one drives what is what we're trying to find out. And um, I wouldn't want to fall into the pharmaceutical kind of model where we're just isolating one species and trying to, you know, trying to find the magic bullet to supplement or, you know, I think it's, it's more complex than that. Yeah, I, I do too. And one of the things I can appreciate is that in one of your papers, the one that did come out in April 2018, <clears throat> One thing that triggered me is because you were focused on the variety of foods for that very reason of what you just spoke to, which is enhancing the diversity of the microbiome. Mm -hmm. In fact, you even had a nice chart 
which I then later brought into a an online group that I lead, and we did a variety seven-day challenge where we were trying to see could we have 50 unique plant-based foods in a week. And I let them count, you know, spices and nuts and seeds and all kinds of things um, just to, you know, bring in the, the spectrum there. But it's interesting how people do get into ruts. And if they're in those eating ruts, then they're eating the same food, propagating the same bacteria and most mm -hmm. likely not moving out of their symptoms. So is that kind of like an aha for most people that diversity is so important for their health? Uh, it is. And, you know, it sounds so simple because... I mean, with all the knowledge we've got as uh, functional practitioners, it should be common sense for us to, to realize this. But even when I'm talking to practitioners, something so simple takes them away from all the kind of a highbrow thinking and trying to work out pathways. And suddenly they think, oh, my God, I've been obsessing with blah, blah, blah pathway. And uh, perhaps what I should be doing is to try and have three different colors of carrots in a week as opposed to just be obsessive about these specific things. So I think sometimes zooming out slightly can be helpful both as, a, as, a, as an individual who needs help and also the practitioner. I think it's, uh, you know, simplifying things is, um, is quite difficult, actually. I think making things simple can be quite tricky. So what I, what I want my research to contribute to is to making things simple for people, but also for practitioners. So they have simple tools that gather the complexity that is out there, and you can find it. You only need to run a search in PubMed and be overwhelmed by the complexity. But complexity, you can only take so much of it, you know. Uh, <laughs> you, need to, you need to apply it. when. When you want to apply it to a, to a clinical case, you cannot give people papers and ask them to read them, make sense of them. You need to make sense of it yourself and then kind of just give them bite-sized things to do. And I think this, this doing more foods, so 50 is an ideal. There's been a paper published recently that gathered the information from the American GAP project. There's a McDonald and his team, uh, about like 30 different scientists from around the world. And, uh, um, and that basically came to the conclusion that about 30 plant-based plant foods increased the diversity quite substantially. It was significantly uh, higher in those people who ate about 30 plant foods. So I went for 50. Um, mine is not necessarily plant-based because some foods that are colorful also give you interesting compounds that are helpful for the gut, like, for example, salmon will give you as the something and uh, uh, prawns or uh, shrimp will give you the same kind of uh, carotenoids. So uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be all plant-based, but largely plant-based. So I would say, you know, at least half. So I'm kind of like agreeing with what they say about 30 plant foods a week is, is quite powerful. Mm, that's a, such a great benchmark. And I really like the fact that you can see, you know, I think Jeff Bland and I were talking about this some years ago what he referred to as simplex, that mm -hmm. we understand the complexity, that's the X mm -hmm. part, and then the simple, like really taking something that can be very complex from years of research and then distilling it down. And that's really the essence of what you're so much about is taking the intellectualized idea and then putting it into informational tidbits for people to make it really practical. So I love when you talk about all those kinds of tips and tools and things that people can do. 
I, I also know that you are very expansive in your thinking. You're a very well-rounded, I would say, left-brained, right-brained person, more in the balanced um, way. And I'm kind of curious, if we just draw a metaphor for a second and say, okay, 30 plant foods per week helps with increasing diversity of the gut. If we zoom out and we start looking at diversity as symbolic, and we start looking at, it's not just diverse plants, but maybe we need diverse life experiences or diverse people around us. You know, kind of zoom out from food just for a second and maybe talk about how food interconnects to lifestyle medicine in a big way. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and in fact, um, that is um, that is something that happens if you looking just uh, from the point of view of the microbiome, uh, there are, in fact, I'm just trying to find something that I quoted recently, and uh, it will come to me in a second. I'm trying to th think about it in my head. It's a paper that's been published recently, and it may be in the in a Nature kind of uh, uh, journal, one one of the Nature uh, journals, and it was a comparison between microbiome of people in rural rural areas and in city areas. Now, in rural areas, you're exposed to supposedly to animals as well as people. So your experience of what is around you is more diverse in the sense that there may be rabbits and cows and all sorts of things around you as opposed to in a very aseptic kind of uh, um, city environment. The paper will come to me in a minute and uh, I'll, I'll share that with you. But that's just one example. And, I, and if you look at more from the symbolic point of view and the relationships and how those are actually healing or toxic, you know, there could be some relationships are a bit like, Bacteria, you know, some of them could be pathogenic relationships and some of them would be very enriching. I think a diversity of relationships is good, a diversity of friends that give you different ideas and people or colleagues or peers who contribute with different bits and pieces to your life is as important for your mental health and potentially the microbiome too, because it's a bi-directional relationship between the mind and the gut. And... Uh, you know, uh, whereas we we starting to find out a lot about what goes on from in that bit from the gut to up and upward to the brain, what goes on from the brain down is very important as well. And I would say that depending on your mood, you can actually create a, a hostile environment for certain bacteria. That is something that is kind of like being tested at the moment, particularly in animals, which is never going to be the same as a, as a as a human, but it's, it's a theory that is being tested now, particularly in things like depression and anxiety and so on, the kind of environment that you create in your body, but maybe more pro-inflammatory when you're anxious and depressed, and that level of free radicals that are circulating and cytokines that are circulating may make some bacteria not want to stay in your body. So, um, so I, I totally agree. I think it's not just about plants and, uh, and, and foods. It's about the whole of the environment around us and making sure that diversity is there in the whole of the environment is, um, is key. Yeah, and you just spoke to something that has been on my mind since I returned from the Institute for Functional Medicine's annual conference, and the subject of that conference was autoimmunity. There was mm -hmm. a really interesting talk by Dr. Sidney Baker, who I equate with, you know, one of the the pioneers of functional medicine along there with, with Jeff Bland, and, and his whole talk was about helminths, 
you know, worms mm -hmm. and how yeah. if you look at where autoimmune disease occurs and you have a map, you can see that it's typically in countries that are more, um, they have greater levels of hygiene. And, yeah. and, and so like in Africa, you don't see the same incidence of autoimmunity. You see other things, but you don't see autoimmunity. And so his whole premise is that perhaps we have to specifically populate our gut with certain parasites, you know, we, we like to talk about nice little probiotics that we have in food, but he's talking even more along the lines of uh, actually ingesting these organisms and hoping that they colonize uh, in, a, in a larger way. And I know for many of us that might sound kind of uh, maybe disgusting, but, um, you know, maybe we've fallen out of alignment with nature and the symbiotic relationship that we have, you know, in this mm -hmm. effort to sterilize. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've got two dogs, Labradors, they eat everything. When I say everything, and you're talking about eating helminths, you can you can kind of work out what I'm talking about. <laughs> they eat uh -huh. everything. They <laughs> go out and they will gorge on all sorts of things that are on the floor. And I live very rural as well. So I've got little deer um, living around me. I've got loads of rabbits. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's loads of different bits of poo for them to eat. And they love it. It's the delicacy. And I'm thinking, okay, well, they, <laughs> need, they, need to be, you know, they need to be wormed. And obviously, and all of that, you don't want them to be sick. But I don't actually use the medications as often as other people because I think they are quite toxic for the dogs yeah. and I like to keep a balance so equally I don't want them to fall ill so but I will do them once every three months as opposed to just do them monthly uh, and uh, they've never been ill and I feed them raw meat so I keep them quite close to nature you know I like to think if they were wild dogs they I would want them to be quite wild so I don't want them too domesticated so I want them to have a personality and I want them to eat whatever they want from the floor because you know it's, it's what they would do if they were if they would you know if they were wild and I totally agree that we've gone out of the way to create this science fiction kind of environment for us and it may not be completely conducive to the health that that ultimate um, goal of health that we have I found the paper I was talking about it's called Urbanization in um, hang on, or, urbanization and the gut microbiota in health and inflammatory bowel disease, and it was published in April in Nature Reviews in Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and it basically looks at um, it's got a lovely graph. I'm very visual as a person, so I'm always attracted to kind of like diagrams and things like that. And it's got a, a lovely diagram with uh, people in urban areas and people in rural, rural areas. I'll, uh, I'll send this to you so you've got this um, and it's it's basically talking about um, microbial diversity and how in rural areas there is much higher microbial diversity than in urban or city areas and it's all like stick people so it's very cute it's like a cartoon and uh, so it really caught my eye so this is the kind of thing that I, I'm, I'm talking about and I, I agree with the Helmin's theory that I think you know probably and things like H. pylori sometimes, you know, the, you know, the Antoamoeba fragilis or Blastocystis hominis or, you know, unless you actually have got loads of symptoms and you could really pin them down to that, I'd be tempted not to go out of my way to try and get rid of them. So do you think it makes sense for people to get their stool tested so that they know what kind of bacteria, parasites, fungus, you know, that, that they have a whole... Um 
you know, kind of a take, a snapshot of what's actually going on inside. Is that reliable? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, I, I would say yes. Uh, whatever the quality of the, of the uh, um, test that is available, now pretty much standardized if you look at um, how you assess commensal bacteria, so the bacteria that are actually living in everybody's gut in different abundant and diversity scores, but pretty much the same 24 families. You've got this thing called 16S, which is a, um, a specific type of um, assay. It looks at microRNA um, um, of, um, it looks at RNA from the um, bacteria. So it's like a DNA um, analysis that like you can do a 23andMe on yourself. It's like doing a 23andMe on your on your bacteria in your gut. You identify them and quantify them in that way, just for you know, in plain English. And and I find that very interesting. I don't go one by one try and dissect what's going on in everybody's gut, but you know you can see from that kind of like snapshot if somebody's a bit depleted. So if the abundance is low, you can think, okay, well, most of the families need a bit of a push or a, a few need a bit of a push. So it would be better to give this person a highly intense fiber diet plus some probiotics supplemented and things like kombucha and everything that's very high highly populated in, in uh, probiotics like kefir and so on, as opposed to maybe somebody who is in overgrowth state. And some of the families have suddenly decided they were going to take over for whatever reason is the environment and the food they've been eating and so on. And you've got a situation of overgrowth in the large intestine. And that can lead to uh, overgrowth in the small intestine as well, like SIBO. So that, you know, it's tra translocation of bacteria from the colon to the small intestine. And it can be very uncomfortable and it can cause up a number of different, you know, um, uh, knock-on effects. So just from that point of view, I think it's, it's worth doing it. And obviously the functional testing is, is got a, mo a bit more sophisticated now and you can check for parasites as well and uh, metabolites of the bacteria, things like short-chain fatty acids and... Uh, um, markers of inflammation, things like from the very mainstream protecting to more, you know, newer kind of things like the uh, um, um, eosinophil uh, protein X, just as a marker of what may be going on on the gut lining. Sonulin is is a really nice indication as to whether there there is intestinal permeability. So. Certainly, if somebody's got budget to do a little bit of testing, rather than just say, ooh, eating loads of fiber is great for me, I'm just going to eat loads of fiber and loads of colors, well, that is great compared to not eating the fiber and not eating the colors, but if you know uh, that you may benefit from eating specific types of fiber that may feed specific types of uh, uh, bugs, then you can do that if you know you have the information, or if you know that your gut is in a state of overgrowth from bacteria, you may do with having some uh, supplements that may be antibacterial or some botanicals that may be antibacterial for a short spell to balance things out. So I think there's an advantage in, 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 in testing, definitely. 
Let's talk about the overgrowth state because I feel like um, I'm hearing SIBO left and right and mm -hmm. almost every other person is telling me, oh, you know, I was just diagnosed with SIBO and mm -hmm. I've got this overgrowth. Um, give us kind of a, a short primer on SIBO. You know, what are some of the causes? And, and you just mentioned some of the antibacterial, the antimicrobial supplements. What is typically, at least um, in the UK, what would a nutritional therapist do for something like SIBO? Um, so there are various different tests that you can do. Um, I find that when you just test for SIBO, um, so you can test for a couple of things. One is um, hydrogen and the other one is methane, basically. Uh, some tests combine the two, so you know what kind of bacteria may be causing the bloating or the problems. And um, I find that for me, particularly, it works better. So if somebody comes to me with a test already, as I take it at face value, if somebody comes to me and they are worried that they may have SIBO, rather than actually test for SIBO, I like to know what goes on in the large intestine because my opinion is that SIBO is a translocation of bacteria from this a large intestine to the small intestine. And it's called translocation because it's moved, basically. It's gone from the bottom up. And so if you haven't got an overgrowth in the colon, it's tricky to think that you could have an overgrowth in the small intestine. It right. could happen, but mm -hmm. it's a theoretical possibility, you know, hypothesis. It's, it's, it's never been tested so far that it can actually happen. Uh, in most cases, what you're going to see is that there is a, an overgrowth of bacteria in the colon ha that has managed to push its, its way up the, uh, the ileal valve. Uh, basically, that's just giving in slightly, a tiny little bit of giving in day after day after day, and little bits of bacteria trans translocate into the small intestine and start populating those few inches in the small intestine. So it's not the whole of the large, uh, the small intestine that is populated. So that's my way of working. I know that people work in different ways. If you come to me and you're worried about SIBO, I would be tempted to do in a stool test that actually tests for you know, a regular kind of a Genova test or similar, you know, just because I just, uh, I wouldn't do a SIBO test necessarily. I will, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will interpret them if they come to me, but I wouldn't probably use them. I would, I would just uh, look for bacterial overgrowth in the colon. And, uh, and if I find it, then I would be tempted not to overload that person with loads of fiber, particularly if they are, um, not eating loads of fiber already. So if I have a diet diary and they say, okay, well, I eat, you know, seven types of vegetables in a week, I wouldn't give them the 50 vegetable challenge in a week. <laughs> <No>. Because, <laughs> because that could be a mistake. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, I don't want to, you know, it's a house on fire and you don't want to be like putting fuel on top of the fire. You know, it's like adding gas to the fire. It's just silly. So basically what I want to do is, okay, well, leave the diet more or less as it is. Maybe choose specific foods that are lower in sugar, good in fiber, but also really rich in polyphenols or flavonols that are antimicrobial in themselves. So if they like fruit, maybe rather than give them very sweet fruit, I would give them something like a blueberry, for example, which is a quite concentrated source of um, uh, polyphenols in there. Um, if they like uh, um, uh, things like onions and spring onions and things like that, I would probably give them, you know, the, the leeks that are that, the less sweet of the 
of the whole array of bulbs, you know, from scallions to to leeks and things like that. So I would be a little bit more choosy as to what I give them. And then I would probably give them something like a, a product that contains, if the overgrowth is fungal as well as bacterial, I would probably choose something else. But in general, for bacterial, I would uh, rely on things like um, a good source of berberine, uh, which is a, a good wide-spectrum antimicrobial normally uh, works really well. Bear berry is another one that actually works really well, contains this thing called arbutin, which is, um, you know, quite, mm -hmm. a, quite a, a potent antimicrobial. Is also known as uva ursi, uh, as the Latin name. Um, if it's legal, I mean, in the UK, we have this silly situation that some herbs are borderline uh, classed as um, drugs almost. So it's, you know, we can get them, but only if you phone, but you cannot really get them online because it's not possible to get them like that. It's almost like the black market. But if you can get it, black walnut is oh, yeah. uh, fabulous. Mm -hmm. Black walnut uh, or Juglans nigra is a really excellent antimicrobial. It's also antifungal. Uh, Barberry or um, Berberis vulgaris, the bark, normally is another source of berberine. All the bitters, uh, all the bees yeah, and all, all the bitters. bitters. Exactly. Right. And you know, and if, if you have somebody who eats uh, leaves, like bitter leaves, like the uh, rocket, for example, um, and. Exactly. Like mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, artemisine as well, or sweet wormwood. So that's the Artemisia annua herb mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Tribulus terrestris is another one that is, is like an ivy kind of, and it's really high in saponins that are pretty soapy kind of substances. So it's almost like they are foamy. They, they wash the the microbes and they don't like it. It's like, you know, microbes like to be dirty and suddenly you're putting like shower gel in their water. So they, they don't like it. Um, so something like that would be really useful. And then if you have um, uh, the yeast overgrowth, something like, you know, an overgrowth of a candida yeah. type, you know, uh, mm -hmm. probably something like a, a caprylate or caprylic acid is a very mild kind of uh, um, antifungal you know, I just, I found a, um, an abstract came through on my feed showing that for uh, children using MCT, medium chain triglyceride yeah. oil, was beneficial in preventing or at least helping to mitigate some of the candida overgrowth. Exactly, which yeah. Which comes from the fact that it's high in caprylic acid and exactly. certain of these, these uh, fatty acids. So I wonder yeah. if uh, people in general on a ketogenic diet, you know, because they don't have the carbohydrate, they are feeding their bodies with uh, much more of these short, medium-chain fats that probably they're setting up their gut microbiome to be very antifungal, anti, you know, just, again, shifting the population. And maybe that's why so many people experience that initial improvement even. I don't know. I'm just postulating. But there's a lot that happens there without all the, the fibers to feed the gut and much more of the fats. Uh, well, um, funny you say that. There was an article published, uh, it was an intervention in humans last year uh, in um, journal Frontier in Frontiers in Microbiology. 
um, about um, diversity in patients with multiple sclerosis who improved with the ketogenic diet and uh, how that may have been mediated by their gut bacteria. And they looked at their gut bacteria and it had actually uh, improved in diversity via the ketogenic diet. So off the top of my head, I cannot remember exactly the foods that were in the food diaries, um, but uh, I remember there was a lot of butter. Butter is high in butyric acid. It's a, a short-chain fatty acid that is also antifungal and antimicrobial, and uh, it's, it's produced by bacteria in the gut. And it's almost like uh, it's produced by bacteria to call bacteria when they get out of hand, in a way, is one of the things that it does. It kind of uh, limits the amount that certain bacteria can multiply by in the gut, apart from being, you know, wonderful for many other things and traveling to the brain and satiating you and making you feel full so you don't have hunger pangs and uh, you know, being good for, yeah, many other things. Miguel, uh, you know, at the uh, IFM conference on autoimmunity this time around, I noted that even more than probiotics, there was extensive discussion in multiple lectures about butyrate, exactly what you're talking yeah. about. You're talking about butter and butter being a source of butyric yeah. acid, but, <clears throat> excuse me, there were talks about taking butyrate supplementally. And I'm kind of curious uh, if you do that in, in your clinical sphere, is that something that you've seen results with? Um, I have, uh, and I find this particularly useful if you do fasting as well. So, uh, because the, the gut is very receptive to nutrients when it's empty. So obviously when, you know, when you've been fasting for a good 12 to 16 hours, whatever you put in there first is going to have a, a much bigger impact than if you have a supplement or any supplemental substance or a food on top of your, you know, on top of your dinner. So, um, um, butter from small animals, particularly from sheep and goats, is uh, rich in butyric acid, a lot more than um, butter from cows for some reason. Uh, it's, uh, the, the, the fat composition is different and, uh, and it's got more butyric acid than, the, uh, than um, um, cow's butter. So goat's butter is, it can be eaten on an empty stomach or it can be added to a, um, a coffee like, uh, you know, like one of those bulletproof kind of coffees, um, if somebody wants a coffee first thing in the morning after fasting. And uh, that can be a really good way to put butyrate in your body. I find it's, it's really good for calming the brain. It's actually got, got really good effects on anxiety. Um, it, and it's also very good for anti, it's a really good anti-inflammatory, local anti-inflammatory in the gut. So if somebody suffers from IBD, something like Crohn's or an ulcerative colitis, and they are open to working with a little bit of fasting and increasing the diversity of the of of the fruits that they put in their bodies. And the fasting goes from 12 to 16 hours. I was just talking to another colleague of mine the other day, um, Jeanette Hyde, who's um, a wonderful um, nutritional therapist in the UK. Uh, she's written a very good book as well um, about diversity and so on. Um, and uh, she was saying that you know she she she's had great results with fasting and uh, and then introducing diversity as well and in, increasing the the levels of butyric acid in the in the gut. So 
I think it's a very valuable intervention. And it's safe, you know, people get very obsessed with things like this. They get very attached to food. I think not eating sometimes is as as important as eating. So whilst I love food and diversity, I'm a real foodie and I would love to just eat lovely food all day. I think just resetting your body but by giving your body a little bit of a break every now and then is equally important. Um, so, yeah. I love that, you know, uh, and, and that's so much of what we're hearing these days about fasting, intermittent fasting, food restriction of various types. And, but I do think um, certain people need to be a little bit cautious about how they do that. Because, you know, some people get on the bandwagon, they want to try all these things, and they maybe do not have um, the health to be able to fast appropriately. So I think, you know, making little steps. I know the, the way that I do it, is I do an overnight fast, you know, instead of eating, you know, going to bed at 10, waking up at six and then eating right away, I'll wait as long as I can until about eight or even nine. And so then I get um, at least a longer fast and sometimes I'll do 12 hour fast, sometimes even longer, but not everybody can do that. And I, I do worry about, I'm just kind of showing the other side because I know that fasting has just taken off as like this, the latest thing, even though it's been around yeah. for ages, but exactly. you know, there are certain people for whom it's not really indicated, you know, people yeah. with a lot of adrenal fatigue who actually need nutrition uh, a little bit more regularly, you know, I don't know. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that, that is a very important point. I think if that is the case and, and you, want to experiment with it, baby steps at the time. But I always say to people who come to see me that it's not a competition. Yeah. So, you know, if all they can manage is eight hours, eight hours is as good as it gets. If they can manage one hour more in two weeks time and then another hour more in two weeks later, that's, you know, that's good going. It's not, you know, it's not about, you know, I can do more than my husband or I can do more than my friend, you know. But if you if you can do a, a, a little bit of fasting, whatever you can manage, whether it's eight hours, 10, 15, you know, if you're a super duper faster and, you know, and, and you fast for 16 hours, if you then have a little bit of that uh, butyric acid, directly into your mouth you know I'm, I like to leave the butter melt in my mouth I like to think that mm. again this is just a hypothesis but I'm thinking sublingual uh, absorption is so important you know that you absorb b12 for example a lot yes. sublingually right. in a put a little bit of butter in there i'm thinking you know i like to think that it's actually doing something that is it's going into my body a little bit faster if it doesn't okay well fair enough it's going into my gut it feels good it's tasty well we do oh. have a little bit of lipase in our saliva right you know the, yeah. the short chain fats i mean those can be cleaved probably pretty readily as long as we are mixing our saliva with it and and yeah you yeah. know I, one of the the important fascinating pieces of nutrition i think is the chemosensory aspects like how we're finding out that we have taste buds throughout parts of our body that we never thought tasted you know, so mm -hmm. so the concept of taste is signaling the body in different ways that we may not even fully understand. So I love what you're saying about keeping the butter on your tongue or, you know, even when I see people taking supplements, sometimes I just see they, they take like this handful and they just toss it back. There's no like intention or like putting it on the tongue, tasting the herbs, tasting the tea. You know, I, I think my preference is always to do liquid 
or tinctures or teas, decoctions, mm -hmm. rather than pills, tablets, things that are hard that we can't always, or even if we have to take a tablet. I like to taste yeah. it. I actually like to put it on my tongue, just like you. I mean, that's important. I think so. I think it adds to the whole experience. It goes back to your um, uh, metaphor on diversity and exposing your your brain to different experiences as well. And uh, um, uh, I mean, I'm a great believer in supplements. They can do a, a wonderful job when you need them. But I try to put the food in there first and, uh, and as many substances that you could get from food ingredients first and then building the supplements later as much as possible as opposed to send somebody home with a whole list of supplements to take along with their diet that is already a change to what they were doing before just because I find more than anything is compliance as well you can get the black, very black and white people that say you know I want a complete change I want to completely you know it's first of first of January you know new year new life I want to be my new me and I'm going to do everything. But most people work better in little little chunks, little goals. And uh, so I think just working with primarily with food and then just some targeted but very powerful supplements is my preferred way of working. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it, um, in functional medicine, we say food first. And I'm sure that, yeah. that came from somewhere else too. But, you know, the idea of do we because that's a lot of information that's a lot of signaling all at once and to think yeah. that we can override that signal with a little pill from a supplement bottle i just feel like is <laughs> kind of counterintuitive yeah. so yeah I know. We, we come from the same place on that mm -hmm. miguel i know in the interest of time i, I kind of want to bring this to a close you, you've done such a fabulous job of um kind of just going in multiple places uh perhaps you can close by Talking about fermented foods, I know when I interviewed you last time, you had a lot of passion for kombucha mm -hmm. <laughs> and for kefir, kefir. Mm -hmm. and um, you know, wh what's kind of your protocol? What, what do you do every day? Do you make sure, I mean, are, are you pretty fastidious about what you're taking in? Are you fasting? Are you trying different regimens for yourself? Are you analyzing yourself? Are you biohacking? Or are you maybe just doing things more intuitively? I'm, I'm very intuitive in, with myself. Uh, I've tried biohacking before, but it doesn't work because I get too <laughs> obsessed with the detail. And yeah, then I yeah. just lose my intuition. And uh, I'm, 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 I work a lot with my right brain. So with myself, I'm a little bit different than I am with, with my clients. Uh, so I feel best when I fast, um, certainly overnight and when I don't eat very late at night. So my ideal fast would be probably in between 14, and 14 hours, 12 to 14 hours. That makes me feel really good. And then when I'm ready to eat, I eat, I have a window of eating. I eat a pretty, I wouldn't call it completely ketogenic diet, but I eat loads of fiber. Um, some protein, and loads of olive oil, loads of nuts. I eat uh, fermented um, uh, foods like kefir. Um, I drink kombucha. I make my own uh, water kefir, and I drink that throughout the day. And I eat cheese a lot, um, pasteurized cheese, which fortunately in Europe we can still get. I know it's tricky in the U.S. to get raw cheese or you know, unpasteurized cheese, but you do get a lot of really good microbes as well from, from that. 
Uh, and obviously, and K2. The, do you get you get vitamin K two, right? Yeah, and all of course, and and also you get different. The proteins haven't been um, um, damaged by the pasteurization, so you get it's a completely different food, like cheese that is unpasteurized and cheese that that is pasteurized so yeah so that's what when i feel the best and my weight is good and you know and and i feel that i'm in control of my health if i steer away from that you know i'm i'm flexible I'm, I'm i like to think i'm flexible with myself but that is my ideal kind of diet lots of variety mediterranean kind of colors in there lots of different colors every day uh, and i eat more a lot more vegetables and i eat fruit so um I am um, one of those people who is more drawn to salty things than sweet. So I prefer a plate of vegetables with some kind of, a, you know, um, salty dressing or that I've just made from scratch or just like um, Himalayan salt or something or sea salt and olive oil than I am drawn to a pudding or to loads of fruit. So um, I fill up on fiber. <laughs> You know, I wonder if people who have a propensity towards things that are salty, just over the long haul, fare better health-wise than people who have um, kind of an inclination for things that are sweet. I'm just curious. You know, if we really have to put them on a scale and say, if you go more towards salts, are you better off than if you go more towards sweet? Because me listening to you, because I'm on the other side where it's like, wow, if I could have chocolate and, you know, I, I have that. I mean, this, the taste for sweet is definitely built into us from a survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. I get that. But, um, yeah, what, what do we take into our adult life and what are we drawn to? It, it would just be interesting to look at people's taste preferences to see how that matches mm -hmm. their health. It's just chemosensory aspects of nutrition are really more and more yeah. intriguing to me, especially with all the work on bitter and yeah. what we're finding out. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been great. Thank you for sharing your brain. And, and, you know, it's not just your left brain, your logical brain. Um, what I, again, so admire about you, and I have this feeling every time I'm talking with you, I feel like I'm talking with my brother. Like, okay, we're just hanging out, and we get the fact that uh, nutrition can be looked at as a science as much as it can be an art and that we don't have to be so heady and into that analysis paralysis that we can be intuitive and you know once we get kind of our way with things and then, then it becomes experiential so it's always refreshing to talk with you I want to oh thank you is that my the feeling is absolutely mutual and that's what I really like about you as well that you know I think we're on the same kind of wavelength and not over analyzing the small detail but kind of saying hey, it's good to step out of the circle a little bit and look at things more globally and have fun uh, because at the end of the day, you can not do so well today and not have the 50 ideal 50 color food uh, in a week, but next week you can improve. So, you know, it's, um, you've got the power to do that and it's, uh, you know, and no need to be obsessive about it. It's, it's, all, it's all part of the experience of adding diversity to all aspects of our lives. Absolutely. And as C.S. Lewis would say, we can't change the beginning, but we can change the ending. So let's, exactly. let's focus there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'm yeah. To... <laughs> well, I, I paraphrase, but that was the essence of his quote, which I thought was brilliant. So Miguel, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your, your wisdom, your heart with us, and uh, hope to have you back another time. Thank you. I'll, I'll be very happy to do that for you.